0: mother and child come with me sisters young and old now we see Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to Them South. Them South is a podcast, book club, and blog produced right here in Southern Alabama. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women. We read about and discuss women's issues, and we support women to be the change that they want to see in the world. So this episode is a recording of a panel that Amaya and I put together and hosted in our town this last June. The title of the panel is Anger for Change, Women's Emotional Freedom and Transformation. And it's inspired by our book club reading, Soraya Chamali's book, Rage Becomes Her. Our panelists include myself and Amaya presenting and moderating, Local artist, Sarah Rutledge Fisher, psychotherapist, Dr. Katie Penry, and PhD student and faculty member of the United States Sports Academy, Jillian Rosandich. And so to introduce this panel and talk a little bit about the importance of this panel in our, in our area, I've invited one of our panelists to come and talk to me today, Sarah Rutledge Fisher. Hello, Femme South audience. Sarah, do you want to say just a little bit about yourself and your contribution before we talk about the panel? Sure.
1: My name is Sarah Rutledge Fisher. I am a local artist here in South Alabama. I'm also a writer and an advocate for LGBTQ plus issues uh, here in this area and in uh, our country in general.
0: And we're actually really excited to have Sarah on board as one of our Fem South members, producers, supporters all-around contributors. So Sarah, what did you think about your experience with this panel discussion?
1: Well, I thought it was so exciting. It was really energizing to be in a room full of women who were all there to openly talk about and discuss not just anger and not
0: just the need for change, but women's anger. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that I took away from the whole month of activities that we did but definitely this panel was that women actually are angry in our area and there's much to be angry about right absolutely but one of the things
1: that i thought was most remarkable was that it it didn't feel like a space where women were just showing up to express their anger rather women feel this anger all the time and they were showing up with Um, warmth and excitement and enthusiasm about being allowed to acknowledge the anger that we all experience day to day. So it didn't feel like an angry room. It felt like an exciting, energized room talking about anger. It was such an interesting place.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And what do you think about the importance of having or the challenge of having a panel discussion like this in the South in our area?
1: Well, you know, we were talking earlier and I was saying that, um, that I, I'm in my early 40s and I am just coming to a, a real and full understanding of anger as an important part of a full emotional spectrum for me to be a whole and healthy human being. And I don't think that's unusual among my peers. I think there are a lot of women in my age group who are just learning to accept their anger. And um, so I think it's so important, especially in the American South, to acknowledge that women do feel anger, which sounds insane, um, as if any of us think that we don't, but I feel like there's so much social pressure to um, subvert that anger into other emotions or or other um, ways of displaying emotion. So I thought it was really important and powerful to have the conversation. Another thing that I thought made our conversation so important is the almost multi-generational trauma that keeps some of us from expressing our anger. And I think many people grow up in households uh, or environments where expressing a negative emotion as a woman or a girl could put them in physical or emotional danger. And even for those of us who didn't grow up in environments of danger, if that was the case for our mothers or even our grandmothers, those lessons about repressing negative emotion to avoid potential physical and emotional harm carry down several generations. And so I think we're really fighting deeply ingrained Social emotional uh, restrictions,
0: and I think that's even more true when we start talking about race and class and gender and sexual identity, because then that's even more of a challenge. And as we've been reading Audre Lorde for our next book club discussion, I've been really seeing, you know, some of the pieces that were missing in this anger panel that I, I'm excited to talk about when we do start talking about Sister Outsider, but that I'd like to just. You know, address here and say that yes, there are some pieces that we are missing in our panel discussion, but we are learning and we're reading, and we are going to be diving into more of an inclusive conversation about women's anger and race and class and gender and sexual identity.
1: Absolutely. I haven't heard this panel since we participated in it, so I am really excited to listen to this when everyone else does.
0: This is anger for change a panel discussion about women's emotional freedom and transformation so just a little bit about fem south a lot of you were here at our launch party so you already know a little bit about us this is our second event our our uh, second event since the uh, launch party but we are a podcast we are a book club and we're a blog We started off as a book club and we were reading a lot of great books and having a lot of great conversations. And so from there, we just thought, man, we really need to record these conversations. And so that's kind of what started the podcast. And now we have 14 episodes. Yeah, 14 episodes out of various topics and books. And Amaya and I are also currently working on collecting abortion stories. And so that's going to be coming out soon. But the book that we most recently read, The one that really prompted us to do this panel is Soraya Chamali's Rage Becomes Her. This is a really fabulous book, and she really uh, addresses a lot of things about women's anger, one of which is why we have such a hard time expressing anger, right? How many women here are feeling angry about any situation right now that's going on? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And how many women feel comfortable expressing anger? Pretty comfortable expressing that. Not everybody that first raised their hand. (laughs) Did you raise your hand? You feel comfortable expressing? So we wanted to really kind of talk about not only expressing anger, but really how we think about
2: anger, about reframing the way that we even talk about anger. So we are attempting to have a new kind of communication model tonight. We're going to ask for you to try to be radically present. So what does that mean? Tune in to who's speaking. Not thinking about what our responses are going to be next, but really listen. What is it like to really listen to the people that are speaking? Tuning in, communicating from the body and from the heart. Compassionate communication, attentive listening, practice being concise, something that Lee and I really need to work on. Allow for silence. Allow for others to speak. And allow for mistakes. It's okay if we make mistakes. We're all just doing this for the first time. I mean, this is, this is sort of unprecedented what we're doing, and we're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. And hold difference in kindness. We're going to have different opinions, and that's okay too. Can we hold our differences in kindness? All right. So what is anger? I'd like you to tune in real quick to your own systems in your own life and think about how do you manage anger in your life? What does anger feel like to you? How do you receive anger? How do you express anger? Is it toxic? Is it acceptable? Is it unacceptable? How are we dealing with emotions, especially anger? We've we've come from a culture that has favored one type of expression, Positive emotions, especially in the New Age spiritual communities. Positive emotions, good emotions, light emotions, things that make me feel expansive, things that make me feel pleasant. But that's only one side, one expression of what it means to be human. There's a whole nother type, a whole nother approach to emotions. Oftentimes they've been labeled bad, negative, heavy dark, contracting, unpleasant. So they have negative connotation. But really, all emotions are, are energy in the body. So emotion is the, I think, Latin uh, root of "emovere," which means to move. So emotions are really just energy in the body that needs to move. There's no good or bad, it just is. Now, some emotions are a lot of energy, and so they're difficult for us to hold. But they need to move. So point point is, if we start reframing emotions and we start looking at them as just energy in the body that needs to move, why do we favor one type of expression over the other? And can we start to shift that so that we can hold anger in a different way and actually move through it and use it to fuel? Change. So, all right. So, what do we do instead of allowing emotions to move through us? Yeah. We, We fall into our addictive patterns. Food, alcohol, television, sex. Any others? Shopping. What's that? Sheet cake. Sheet cake. Exactly. Baking. Yeah. Cleaning. All right. So... We're going to go into a little bit of the history of women and anger because I think it's really important once we start looking at motions in the body to put it into a historical context. So I'm just going to do this briefly. This could be a whole nother talk. But I wanted to briefly discuss the loss of the goddess. So we're looking here at three figurines, all different depictions of the goddess. And before patriarchy, there was a general worship of the mother goddess, the creator of life. Earth, really, it was Gaia. And looking at mythology, we can start to see how the goddess was replaced by the gods. So this is the shift. This is the start of patriarchy. And this is really important because why are we angry? Well, because we have <laughs> had thousands of years of oppression under patriarchy. And we're not even aware, some of us, I wasn't for, for, for sure, I wasn't aware until I started studying mythology in graduate school, that there is incredible subordination and oppression of women in these mythologies. These are three myths that I, as a child, I never knew what they were really talking about. But as a graduate student, I started seeing, oh my gosh, okay, Athena right here. Athena is born out of the head of Zeus. So Athena no longer needed a mother to be born into the world. Zeus replaced Gaia, the great mother, and now Zeus was bearing children. This middle image is of Persephone being abducted to the underworld by Hades and raped. This is actually a rape myth. Pretty shocking. So rape becomes normalized in our mythologies. This third one is Medusa. Does anyone know the story of Medusa? Right. Snakes in her hair, but why does she have snakes in her hair? Well, I just learned this, actually. So what happened was Medusa was raped by Poseidon in one of Athena's temples. Athena found out and punished Medusa, not Poseidon. She punished Medusa by turning her hair into snakes. And then anyone that Medusa saw would be turned to stone. And so she had to hide out in a cave. And then, of course, as the myth goes, everyone was on this mission to slay Medusa, chop off her head, and bring it back to the gods, right? So another rape myth where rape was normalized and then, of course, what happens after the mythologies, we have the greatest myth of all, which is a male-dominant religion. And it's not just Christianity. We have male-dominant religions you know, worldwide. And it's really interesting, right? Why is God male? Why is that? What would it look like if God was female? Most of us don't even question that. And I'm not saying that it should be that way, actually. I just want to plant this seed before we move on. I believe, and I'll, I'll bring it to emotions in a second. I actually believe that God is the union of the masculine and the feminine. The divine, the great mystery, universal consciousness is the union of the masculine and the feminine. Jesus and Mary represented that so beautifully. But then what happened? Where did Mary go? Jesus rose, Mary, prostitute. What does this have to do with emotions? For so long, we have favored one type of expression. Patriarchy meant males were in charge. Patriarchy meant males wrote the, the guidelines, our history, what it means to express emotions. So as we start to reframe anger, can we see a union between the good and the bad, the dark and the light, the masculine and the feminine, and start to bring those together in wholeness. So just building upon what she was talking about with the goddess
0: and the fragmentation of the goddess and the refocusing, women are left out of basically the building blocks of society. But literature, when women get access to literature, it's a huge transformation for us. But it takes a while. And in the beginning, women's emotionality is trivialized in literature. So. In the beginning, when women are starting to write, well, first of all, it's only a selected women, nobility, women with some kind of means to access literature in the first place. But when women are starting to write, their emotions are trivialized because women's emotionality is not a serious academic pursuit for men, right? And so women's writings are also very different, right? So women are writing diaries and notes and letters, so it's a different kind of print. So they have a different way of expressing themselves, but it's not just that they have a different way of expressing themselves, it's what they have accessible to produce in the world. But what's happening also during this early time is that any of the anthologies that are collecting and reproducing the works are favoring, obviously, the works of men, but they have a political agenda. And so women's private lives aren't interesting enough to go into the canon, right? And so what, we're stu- what men are studying as as worthy of studying is things that would fit you know a political social agenda and it's not women's emotional lives. Okay, next slide. But in the 18th and 19th century women do begin to dominate. I mean lots of changes happen. Talk about religion's influence on women's literacy is huge. The Protestant Revolution is huge for women. On one hand, it gives them the accessibility to produce more than we have. The printing press, so women are writing more, and um, so in the 18th and 19th century, they're having, they're dominating the scene in l- literature and novels. But still, we needed the feminist scholars to recognize this, and it wasn't until really the 1960s, 70s that we had feminist scholars looking back historically at all of these women's writing and seriously taking a look at what they meant. And what they discovered was is that these writings are full of hidden subversive meaning. I mean, they are full of women's anger, they, uh, but they're subversive, right? So women still couldn't be angry in literature. They had to hide their anger in different ways, in innuendo, and in subtleties. But what they also find is that women are revealing their discontent. Women were revealing their discontent they were revealing their depression, they were revealing their anger, they were revealing things like medical misdiagnosis. I mean, men dominated everything. They dominate, and we're going to talk about psychology, but they dominated women's mental well-being. And so they were, we have lots of um, examples in literature where women are talking about basically being diagnosed with hysteria or even like postpartum depression not being taken seriously and then having to have medical treatments that were not conducive at all to a woman's actual recovery. Most medical treatments were isolating the women. So then when we get into women's isolation, But then we also see in this literature that women are the voice of activism. They're writing about anti-slavery. They're writing about anti-colonialism. They're the ones who are writing on behalf of the marginalized, the underprivileged people. They are expressing the problems through their writing. So women have a tremendous voice, actually. And if you start to look at literature, especially in the 18th and 19th century, and of course, in the 20th century, that begins to change. Women's writings become much more as they should be, expressing real emotion, real anger, and not subtle emotion and and hidden anger. And also, the other thing, real quick, is that um, in, in Victorian writing, you see a lot of dead husbands. <laughs> There's a murder. Somebody has killed a husband. So, moving along, Sarah is an expert in art. And, Sarah, just to kind of prompt your discussion, can you talk about the oppression of women as displayed through art? Absolutely. You know, emotion and especially
1: anger is something we rarely see historically in art. And so I think it's a really interesting topic. And I've got a lot to get through and a lot of images. But for people who are listening to this on the podcast, a lot of the images are going to be things you're very familiar with already. So it shouldn't be too difficult to follow along. Um, A couple of years ago, I was uh, walking around in Mobile for Art Walk. It was a couple months after the presidential election. I was just feeling really relaxed and happy. (laughs) Um, no. Uh, And I (laughs) and I ran across these panels by local artist June Reddick Stennis, and I could not look away. There were these women's faces, they were large, they were in public, they're expressing grief and torment and fierce anger. When I reached out to Miss Reddick Stennis to ask her if I could use her art in this presentation, she told me this about creating them. She said It was right after the election. It was during a high point of police brutality and killings. I felt angry, sad, hopeless because the world was so broken and people's hearts were so ugly. This is where this series of murals came from. It was the only thing I knew how to do, so I cried and I painted. I stayed up several days because I couldn't sleep. My mind couldn't rest. When I was done, I was afraid to display them. I told my husband that that people would freak out if I displayed them in downtown Mobile, Alabama. And I didn't want to lose, so I used my alias. Her work broke this thin shield that I was holding over my own grief and anger and it left me feeling raw and exposed, but it also left me feeling empowered, like there was this hidden community of other women who were feeling angry and broken and exasperated. And it left me wondering, why don't we see paintings of strong female emotion? Why don't we see female rage? And what is the effect on us of its invisibility? <laughs> so I want to talk about the gaze, Real quick, I'm not talking about the LGBT community. I'm talking about G-A-Z-E gaze. So show of hands, uh, who's familiar with the concept of the gaze as it's used in sociology, psychology, critical theory? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, it's largely credited to Foucault and his studies of power dynamics, largely in the fields of medicine and um, criminal justice in ways that are still echoing today. And it, it refers to the act of seeing and being seen. And it's, it's long associated with the study of power dynamics and social behavior. So in 1975, a woman named Laura Mulvey, who was part of the second wave feminist theory, introduced the concept of the male gaze and that to demonstrate the reflection and perpetuation of gendered power dynamics in film. So her theory was that women are typically depicted in a passive role that provides visual pleasure through the identification with the on-screen male actor. Good example here. For, For those listening along on the radio, this is a picture of a typical James Bond with the female Bond villain, I think played by Halle Berry. It's a Pretty extreme example of the male gaze. So, in their traditional role—and this is a quote—in um, their traditional exhibitionist role, women are simultaneously looked at and displayed, with their appearance coded for strong visual and erotic impact, so that they can be said to connote to be looked atness. So, this results in the women being the bearer of meaning, not the maker of meaning, which is a power shift. The The person who is gazing, the gazer, bears the power. The gazed upon is subjected to the power. And I I chose this slide from the film Hidden Figures specifically because it's a, a movie about the power struggle and about women's empowerment. But still, even in this moment where the character is being displayed as empowered, we're seeing her being seen. We're seeing her through the male gaze. Okay, so moving on to art. I'm supposed to be talking about art, right? (laughs) Not movies. So historically, most women depicted in Western art did not have a lot of strong emotion, and they were almost always the object of the gaze. This reflects and reinforces the power dynamics of our Western society's gender structure. And I love this quote. Well, I love it and hate it, as you'll see. Women in painting don't usually look out at the viewer. They aren't considering the viewer. But considering how the viewer sees them, they have an inward gaze rather than an outward gaze. And this is a man named Andrew Lear discussing the work of an art historian named John Berger. Again, these are two men layered deep talking about the experience of women in art, which is it's a whole other layer to this. But- you
2: feel like his insight...
1: I think it's pretty on point. Okay. Yes, I just think it's interesting that the expert voices, even in this area, are still male voices creating the meaning. So yeah, I'm sorry I cut off your question, but no, good question. Good. So let's look at a few of the most famous women in Western art. So these are the very familiar paintings that the people listening in will know. Uh, we're going to start with Portrait of the Artist's Mother by James McNeil Whistler. You, you guys know this as Whistler's mother. Now, what emotion is expressed by this painting? I see kind of a a grimness, a seriousness. There's an earnestness to it. There's a loneliness, maybe a, a sense of oppression or depression. But what expression do we see on the mother's face? There's no expression on the mother's face. Does she have autonomy, individuality in this painting? Or is she the bearer of the artist's meaning? Is she the object demonstrating the meaning that the artist has for us? All right, next one. This is one where people have discussed the intense and complex emotion on this woman's face to no end. This is the Mona Lisa. And look at that strong and powerful emotion. Is she happy? Is she angry? Is she bored? Her emotion is so subtle, we don't even know. Is she considering the viewer, or is she considering how the viewer sees her? This is for you to decide. Uh, There's no right or wrong answer here. Is she the maker of the meaning, or is she bearing the meaning that the artist or the person gazing that we're embodying as the viewer put on her? Okay, this is Vermeer's girl with a pearl earring. She's almost looking at the viewer. Not quite, but almost. She looks vulnerable to me, uncertain, a little afraid. Is she considering the viewer? Is she thinking what her thoughts are about the person she's looking at? Or is she look, looking at the viewer and considering how she's seen? Mm. All right, maybe we need something more modern, right? So let look at Picasso, such a well-known feminist. I'm sorry, my sarcasm isn't yeah. clear, I'm that. <laughs>
2: um,
1: but, you know, maybe it's a lack of modernity. But no, we look at Picasso's portrait of Dora Maar, and she has two different perspectives displayed on her face, and they both say, Oh, are you looking at me? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I, I think it's a fair argument to say that she looks like she's considering how the viewer sees her. Okay, wow. so, so can it even be done? Is this just what happens when you have to hold your face still? be painted in a portrait. Maybe this is just a function of the art. I think Frida Kahlo says no. So here we're looking at Frida Kahlo's self-portrait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frida Kahlo's self-portrait <laughs> with a thorn necklace and a hummingbird. And she is most certainly both the maker and the bearer of the meaning in this painting. So why does this matter? We are still being fed these same gender norms through visual representation at an absurd rate through TV, movies, magazines, social media. And even though fast, cheap, high quality photography means that women could be represented with a wide variety of emotions and facial expressions, we rarely see them. Uh, And far too often, even the most powerful women are presented as the object of the gaze. To some extent, things are changing. We see more of the female or the ungendered gaze in movies like Fargo, which was groundbreaking for that very uh, reason, Bridesmaids, and the one most on point for our rage discussion, Furiosa and Mad Max. (laughs) Um, And in magazines, we see more women presented as the ones who are looking out at the viewer making their own meaning. We see Michelle Obama's cover on Time Magazine. We see Sheryl Sandberg on Fortune. These women are looking out. They are not considering how they're being seen. They're looking out to you, creating the meaning. And we see Jane Fonda's recent cover in Bizarre magazine. But we still see powerful women stripped of their autonomy by being depicted in passive, infantilized roles that provide visual pleasure through identification with the assumed male viewer. I'm gonna show you the next slide. And it's a slide of two of the most powerful women in media today. These are two of the most powerful women in Hollywood, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman. Now, are they considering the viewer or are they considering how the viewer sees them? They have an inward gaze, not an outward gaze. And there are plenty of other feminist critiques I could make on those images, but just In in the matter of the gaze alone. Now, so what's the point, Sarah? Could you just explain what we're looking at? Oh yes, please. Thank you for reminding me. Okay, so what we're looking at here are two side by side um, magazine covers of a recent InStyle magazine featuring Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman. And in the images, we see both women in kind of a coquettish. Go ahead and say how you how you introduce this image to us, the panel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, only if you guys promise to cut it if you think it uh shouldn't be in the, <laughs> the podcast um i think in our uh video meeting i said that they were they were sta they were sitting there in the oh no mister please don't rate me pose which um is a harsh way of saying these women are put in clothing that infantilizes them they look like children and they look like sexualized children And they look like vulnerable, sexualized children. And these are the two most powerful, highly paid women in Hollywood right now. Both of them have been named one of Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people over the past few years. And this is how they're being presented in every... Grocery store newsstand. So it's just remarkable. So what's the point? I'm not asking you to stop enjoying art. I'm not asking you to not appreciate the Mona Lisa or, you know, stop watching movies or stop buying fashion magazines. I'm not even asking you to get angry about this. That's up to you. But these are the visual building blocks of the world that we take in all the time without noticing. So I'm asking you to notice. Pay attention to whose eyes you're gazing through when you consume art and media. Notice how the world around you reflects those messages in your day-to-day life. When you see art or media, pay attention to how it makes you feel. Does it make you feel like you're under the gaze of an invisible all-knowing male viewer, or does it make you feel seen and heard and empowered? That's my pitch. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Wow. Thank you.
0: So this is a good stopping point. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will hear from two more panelists discussing women and the history of psychology and women in sports and media and the Me Too movement and more. You're listening to Fem South. We'll be right back. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to Fem South. In case you don't know, listening to Fem South for the first time, we are a podcast dedicated to demystifying the feminist movement in the South and bringing the South into a more open, inclusive dialogue. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. You can subscribe to our newsletter and our blog by going to our website, www.fimsouth.com And please, please, please follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, join our private Facebook book club group, and get into the conversation with us. So now back to our panel discussion entitled Anger for Change, Women's Emotional Freedom and Transformation, inspired by Soraya Tumali's book, Rage Becomes Her. I do want to warn listeners that because this is a live recording during our panel discussion, we have some microphone issues that I couldn't completely clear out after editing this podcast. So please bear with us with the microphone. It only lasts for a few seconds, but we didn't want to delete it altogether because we felt like it was really important to hear what Dr. Katie Penry had to say. Okay, so we're moving on to women in psychology. Dr. Katie, this one's for you, just to give you a question to prompt it. So while it was a step in the right direction, psychology was still created by men and from a culture that oppressed women. So can you talk about anger and women's emotionality in the field of psychology, i.e. the treatment of hysteria,
3: the vapors,
0: women's sexuality, anatomy? Yeah.
3: So um, she did such a good job of having slides. I've never felt like, oh, my gosh, I need the slides. But the truth is this whole conversation is in some way about psychology. And I feel like my my position on the f- panel really is just to kind of keep us grounded in that, that direction and to field questions. So women in psychology is such a rich and dynamic um, Thing, I mean, women have really pushed psychology forward. But even still, we are living in a um, our understanding of psychology. For instance, Erikson's stages or even Piaget or any of these psychologists that really have laid out for us what it means to develop normally as a human, they are, they are grounded in masculinity <laughs> and the hero narrative, which would be um, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad. These are stories of fierce independence and violence. Um, and, and just very recently um, have we started to say, what if the goal of psychological development is not independence? What if it's relationality? And that is just such a very, very new question that there really is, the writings even are really quite shallow. Um, Not shallow. They're all brilliant. Uh, There's not a lot of them. The stack is small. Um, And so I think that Women in psychology, that's one of the big questions on the table now, is how do we develop an epistemology, like an understanding of the human that is feminine? You know, how do we understand difference? Um, How do we even ask that question? You know, are men and women the same? These are the questions I get fielded a lot. Um, do women have as much anger as men do men have more anger than women those are questions you know what are the differences there and um, and I think that female um, and and feminist psychologists now are really trying to even deconstruct that question and just make it more uh, like trying to be have like a really it depends answer and so that's been a really that's an interesting uh, thing but you mentioned, uh, Lee, hysteria, and this is something I did want to talk about because I think whenever we talk about the history of women and women in psychology, the number one thing that I think probably comes to all of our minds is hysteria. Um, as a psychoanalyst, I am Freudian, and I get questions about that. How can you be Freudian and be a feminist? Like if people here, I, wish, I want to know what's on your mind. Whenever I say I'm Freudian, you're like, oh my God, how can you be Freudian and feminist? are you thinking what? Either one of you, yeah. I was a therapist. Yeah. Okay. So Freud, to me, I feel like Freud is so brilliant and I can so still just absolutely love the man. But let me tell you a little bit about Freud and hysteria and like Charcot and the history of their understanding of women is that um, you know, they're hysteric and then that's probably because in, in Freud's, well, let me start from the beginning. Let me, how do I even begin this? So hysteria is like a catch-off for everything weird and mysterious about the woman and it's grounded in the uterus. And so they're going to call it hysteria. So Freud digs in and Freud's like, Freud and Charcot, in France, and this is like the Revolution, the Third, like Republic, and we're going to over finally overthrow the Papacy, and we're going to create a secular Republic, and we're going to be this. And so they need men of science and the Enlightenment, and they need to make it. Uh, they need to, and and one of the great battlegrounds is women and women's mental health. And what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to take we're going to liberate the women from religion, and we're going to investigate them. As scientists, and that's how it is. And so, so they're going to say the the papists say that you're demon possessed and that this is all um, uh, religious, his uh, overwhelm, and you're just you can't you're consumed by religiosity or the a spirit of some kind. And we're going to say no, it's not that. It's something else. And we're actually going to study them. And and you know what? There is something so brilliant and wonderful in like Freud's paper on hysteria is so beautiful and gentle and respectful and especially kind of birthing out of the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, you'd never seen anything like it whenever Freud wrote this paper. I mean, it was like he was for the first time sitting down and just listening to women. And here's what women were saying, I've been raped since the time I was a little girl over and over and over. In fact, it happened so many times that by the end of it, Freud said, I can't even believe it. You must be making it up. And this is why people hate Freud. It's because it, it, at some point he makes a turn and he says, it, you know what? They're not only are they making it up, they must desire it. Uh huh. And, and so the, the study of hysteria kind of ends there. You know, you have Bertha, uh, Anna O, oh, his famous Anna O, oh, and it's so respectful and brilliant and lovely. And Bertha Pappenheim, who is Anna O, oh, she's liberated from hysteria and her blindness and all of these conversion disorders that were rooted, of course, in just constant and overwhelming sexual assault and abuse. And she births like this beautiful feminist movement in Europe. But um, after Anna O, oh, then his next paper he publishes. Is just kind of eventually, is essentially, Freud and her, Dora, fighting him trying to convince her, you wanted this, didn't you? And then the, you know, uh, the, en- and the enlightenment turns once again on the woman. And I love this story. And the only reason I tell this story is because even though the MeTube movement feels really good, and it feels like we're finally like being seen and we're kind of like having this moment, it can end because it ended then. The Enlightenment and those men really started giving women a stage and they were even bringing them on stage and they were giving them these big public appearances and asking them to tell their story, the story of sexual assault. You, can you guys believe that these women have been sexually assaulted since they were kids? And Freud's saying, in every woman I talk to, this hysteria is not a psychosis, it's a manifestation of her ongoing trauma, the trauma perpetrated by you guys. And and they said, No. And then so Freud said, for the sake of my career, I'm gonna wrap that up and we're gonna just get on down the road. And he did, and he did. Until the, thir- the second major trauma movement, which was shell shock. And shell shock looks a whole lot like hysteria. And men started paying attention.
4: Shell shock like after World War One. Yes,
3: trench warfare, shell shock looks a whole lot like a lot of the same conversion disorders this neuropathy and neurology problems that look neurological but have no neurological basis um shell shock just good old-fashioned ptsd and people and then so the men are saying no 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 no, don't lock me away don't go, just call me crazy treat me treat me and the women are like hold on a second um you're telling them this is real and this is war trauma and this has a root and then all of a sudden they started Eventually, but again, we see an advancement of women's theory, an advancement of the seeing of women really like being pinned on an advancement of men. I mean, we finally started like, you know, seeing this. And then so after the shell shock study and they started compiling this research of here's what trauma looks like in the body. And you know what? Let's revisit some of these hysteria studies because maybe there is truth. Maybe women are being traumatized over and over and over again. So they reopened that case in the 70s. And just in the 70s, like 1970 was when this case, they they took 900 two-hour conversations with women and found that one in four women had been raped, one in three women had been sexually assaulted as children. And their symptoms are the same as your shell shock. And here's what trauma looks like, okay? And then and then they started like, okay, we're going to have rape centers and we're going to um, start really treating these women like they really have had a real experience. And so if I, you know, talking about the history of rage and hysteria, and I would say women have been angry for a very long time and only very very, very recently, has anybody heard. It was 1973, whenever they first started having a conversation in America about let's actually call rape violence. Until then, it was just a sex act, just a sex act. And so people say, how can you be Freudian and be a feminist? I can be Freudian and be a feminist because at least he listened. And so even though he didn't have this like, Promethean moment where he just moved the whole culture and everybody went with him. Uh, the culture and the politics weren't ready. They weren't. And and I love the fact that he was grounded in something archaic by his culture. Even a brilliant mind like Freud, he couldn't push forward and say, guys, no, this is really trauma. He had to get kind of stuck in his way. And and ultimately, he, he let women's he really listened and you know, because he listened guys, I think that women stopped getting raped at, like all the time because for the first time, and this is like 1880s, 1890s was the first time in at least our modern history that um, men started being afraid that women were going to speak to somebody and say, tell a story. That is not that long ago. And Freud did that for us. So yeah,
2: the women of anger. Okay, I'm off the track. I'm on oh. the rails now. No, thank you, Katie. And yeah. could you just repeat that again, from a psy- psychology perspective? Why are women angry? You said it beautifully just a second ago.
3: Because we've been raped for a few hundred thousand years. <laughs> no. no, because seriously, like one in four women being raped. Whenever this first came out, one in four women. And that is because nobody listened and because the stories weren't being told. And we have to just keep telling those stories. It wasn't until 1970 that somebody said, I'm listening. I'm listening in a way that's going to make change.
2: That's huge. So huge. And this is a great segue into what Jillian's speaking about.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that provided um, some great context for where we are now. I don't think there's anyone in this room that hasn't heard of Me Too or Time's Up. And so I'm going to be talking to you about the plight of women now that are existing in male-dominated spaces. And so I've worked in TV and movie production, and now I work in sport. And something I've noticed about both of those fields is they kind of feel like the final frontier of not really having a dedicated HR department. It's kind of the wild, wild west of anything goes. And for a long time, that's just the way it was. They were very late in the game of coming up with a very vocal, outspoken movement. I think we've seen that through um, Me Too. We've seen that through the U.S. gymnastics team speaking out against uh, their team physician, Larry Nasser for sexual abuse. And yeah, in a lot of ways, if we look at contemporary existence, we live in an age where women can be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, tech powerhouses, uh, they can be the highest paid showrunners in Hollywood, Shonda Rhimes. But we also live in an age where women are still making 80 cents to the dollar that men are making. Um, It's even less for black women, 63 cents, Latina women, 54 cents. And where women that advocate for promotions for themselves are billed as less likable or bossy uh, or intimidating. And I think um, in sport, there's really no better example of that than what's happening now with the <laughs> yeah. with the U.S. women's national team, one of the winningest teams in history across sport. They scored they scored 13 goals in their game against Thailand. For reference, the U.S. men's team has scored 13 goals in the last year, um, <laughs> and I'm not joking. Um, and they're making around 38 cents to the U.S. men's team's dollar. So it feels like we've come a long way and we have, but we're not there yet. And so that's why I think a little background and context is needed on that. Um, I think even when women are afforded positions of power, it's often with stipulations. There's the notion of the glass cliff, which is a phenomenon in which women are more likely to be put into leadership roles under risky and precarious circumstances when they're more likely to serve as the fall guys, no pun intended. Yeah, um, you see this with Ellen Powell at Reddit, you see it with Marissa Meyer at Yahoo, you see it with uh, Jill Abramson at the New York Times, the list goes on and on. And women that find success are often still policed on their behavior and the way they carry themselves in that role. For our listeners at home, I have some pictures pulled up. One is of Catherine Switzer, who dared to run the Boston Marathon <laughs> in 1967, when it was still a men-only race. She was literally assaulted by by race officials. Um, Brandi Chastain, who... Sure who dared to take her shirt off, which literally today when I was preparing for this, I went to YouTube and typed in goal celebrations. And um, see, you know, at one in every three men in these goal celebration compilations are ripping their shirt off and doing the robot, and nobody cares. And Brandi Chastain dared to reveal her sports bra when she scored a goal. In 1999, and she was on magazine cover. She was accused of showboating, of sexualizing the moment, of making it all about her. We got too
3: close to her boobies.
4: Yes. (laughs) These are boobies. We almost saw a nipple, God forbid. (laughs) And so we also saw this uh, in the, there's some really great quotes about a softball player named Samantha Show. Uh, She plays for Oklahoma, and she just did really, really well in the College World Series We can go to the next slide. There is a quote from um, an NCAA coach who wrote about her celebrating her home run by tossing her bat. This is another example of people policing the way women celebrate or express their emotions. She said, we become so consumed by judging the behavior of our female athletes that we are even willing to dismiss the incredible feats that evoked these passionate responses in the first place. And... We have forgotten so much of our history. And as a result, we continue to repeat it using the same narratives to describe these antiquated debates over our behavior, our worth, and our participation. And on social media, someone had a great tweet. It said, in 1999, people wanted Brandi Chastain to keep her shirt on. In 2019, people want Samantha show to set her back down gently. When will we let women celebrate and show passion? Change the narrative. We just saw this with the women that yeah. scored 13 goals. Oh, they should have stopped celebrating their goals. They're showboating. Why are we policing these women's emotions instead of celebrating their accomplishments? So said they were right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so if we can move on to the next slide. Um, oh, it's missing, but that's OK. It's just a giant picture of me too, hashtag me too. I've given you some context on how women struggle to gain power and why even powerful women aren't safe once they achieve achieve success. And I think that this concept has been most recently and perhaps most notably demonstrated through the Me Too movement. Just for a bit of context, it really kind of exploded onto the scene when Ashley Judd wrote a New York Times op-ed on experiencing sexual harassment from Harvey Weinstein, which led to a domino effect of similar accusations. It spread throughout Hollywood. Um, Alyssa Milano really took it viral online by asking women to retweet, if you've ever experienced sexual assault, say, me too. That was not the first time the phrase had been used in conjunction with sexual assault. I think it's important to point that out. It was originally coined by Tarana Burke in 2006. She was a sexual assault survivor, and she explained, it was a catchphrase to be used from survivor to survivor to let folks know that they were not alone and that a movement for radical healing was happening and possible. And I really like that quote because I think it speaks uh, to what Amaya was saying about radical healing and this kind of buzzing feeling we're all experiencing where we're ready to be healed. And this kind of collective voice is allowing us to do that. Once Me Too took off, gymnasts like Michaela Maroney felt like they could speak up against Larry Nassar We had Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Matt Lauer, Russell Simmons, Mario Batali, the list goes on and on. This led to the creation of the Time's Up movement, which has since evolved to become a social welfare organization. It's not just Hollywood anymore. They're insisting on safe, fair, dignified work for women of all kinds. They're partnering with leading advocates for equality and safety to improve laws and corporate policies, provide survivor support. They've established a legal fund. And the Me Too movement has really gone on to permeate nearly every existing employment sector. It's in military, music, academia, medicine, science, journalism, government, religion. And it's manifested itself through women's marches. How many of us have participated in a women's march lately? I know I have participated in a few. And it's not been without its own backlash. There's been, you know, um, criticisms that it's been whitewashed or co-opted by white feminists. Notable spokespersons for the movement like Asia Argento have been accused of abuse themselves. I think anytime a movement balloons as quickly as Me Too did, there's there's going to be backlash like that. And so I feel like as um, a younger woman entering into a career, I always say, Okay, it's helpful to know all of this stuff, but like what do I actually do? Like there's no guidebook for me to know how to handle myself in these situations necessarily. I'm kind of just figuring it out as I go. I know what we have to be angry about, but I don't know what to do with that anger. And so I wanted to offer some actionable advice that I've found from women that have mentored me, and it's to ask tough questions. Don't be afraid to speak up when you see injustice. Uh, Don't become complacent about the inevitability of gender progress in the workplace. Find a mentor. It's not always as as simple as just going out and finding one. Sometimes it's just finding a woman you admire and asking her to have coffee and seeing how that relationship develops. Support other women. Help each other up. We all want to see each other win. We want to celebrate each other's successes. Getting each other to the table means we can save a seat for everybody else. Invest. Not just monetarily. I think um, that comes from a place of privilege. And if you have money to invest, you should. Women invest way less than men do. But invest in your education. There's there's free a multitude of free courses you can take. Invest in your health. And identify barriers to entering a male dominated industry. Look at the areas where women aren't uh, achieving as much success as their male counterparts, and maybe. Figure out why that is and see what you can do about it. Take BS judiciously. So I feel like as a woman in a man's world, you're going to have to put up with a certain amount of shit. Sorry, you can censor that out if you need to. Um, but if you put up with all the shit, then you're going to have to take it forever. So be sure to pick your battles but and be diplomatic. But do no harm, but take no shit. And if you, ah. want, <laughs> if you want more practical skills, join a hacker space, take an online course in coding. Like n- now more than ever, we live in an age where we have all of these things available to us. So it's an exciting time to um, better yourself. And I think those are functional, conducive ways in which we can channel this anger and frustration of what do I do?
2: Thank you, Jillian.
0: So you just listened to our Anger for Change panel discussion about women's emotional freedom and transformation. We hope that you got something out of it, enjoyed it, and we're excited to announce that we've joined Patreon. This is where you can get more involved with FemSouth. South. You can join our private Facebook group for only a dollar a month. You can get our stickers. You can get our FemSouth South canvas tote bag. You can also join our Feminist Leaders Group in which you will receive each month a link to join an online workshop with other women wanting to be supported on their path of empowerment, leadership, and community building. So we're very excited. We're asking for small donation amounts to help us continue building content that you want to listen to that matters and makes a difference in our community. You can also visit us on femsouth.com, which is where you can read our blog subscribe to our podcast, rate us, give us some feedback, let us know what you think. Until next time, you're listening to Fem South.